Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Moses versus the monsters. Kill them. Kill all them things. Allow it. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. I'm going to spare you my Cockney accent today, I promise. Well, maybe maybe not for the entire episode, but right now I will. Uh, I'm here with the Ron to my Brewis, that is Pete. <laughs> Certainly the Ron to your something, man. To my something. I, I, I might be Samantha, the nurse. She could also... Uh, I don't think either of us would qualify as Moses, the real hero of this story. Um, I could maybe be, yeah, I'm trying to think there's like, okay, there's so many great, let's just put it this way. There are so many great characters in this movie we're discussing, which is attack the block. Honestly, if you haven't seen attack the block, it's one of my favorite movies from the 2010s. It's from 2011. It's set in a London housing estate and there's an alien invasion and this gang of ne'er do well kind of borderline criminal or petty criminal teenagers has to fight off this invasion because of course, one of the great things that this movie gets so right is the police are doing everything wrong, including going after the wrong people rather than, you know, the invading aliens. Um, and that's really all you need to know. The characters that I named Ron and Brewis, Ron is the uh, kind of wiseacre pot grower who lives at the top of the estate played by Nick Frost. who's a great actor. Um, and Bruce is the, pot, the sort of anxious, spoiled, posh student. <laughs> Some of my worst <laughs> traits coming out there. Anyway, I, I'm in, I've injured this enough. I, I really recommend you see it if you haven't seen it. If you have seen it, let's dive right in here. I'm going to hit Pete with this because I'd seen this movie, you know, many years ago, not long after it came out. But I know Pete hadn't seen it until the last couple of days. And uh, I just want to ask a loaded question here, Pete. Pete, what got you to watch this movie? Uh, my, my, my wife told me to. <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah well um i honestly in in discussions with her i'm not actually sure wh- whether she's seen it but her social network of friends around the world were like this is a movie that pete needs to watch and so she brought it back to me well good for her honestly uh we need her to hold you accountable more often because that's great <laughs> it's true i mean this is a movie it definitely qualifies as a cult movie there's a critical mass of people who have seen this when you bring it up, their eyes light up because there's nothing quite like it. I mean, I wrote a whole newsletter kind of about that aspect of it, about how to me it's a blueprint about how to be original and kind of a post everything cultural moment where it feels like the basic concept of originality has sort of filtered out of the arts as even a possibility. And I think attack the block succeed, you know, by my criteria manages true originality because it's a rollicking action adventure about teens fighting an alien invasion. But it's also very smart about like the police state, like a lot of, you know, a recurring leitmotif 
and I won't spoil it, but a really important theme in this movie is the police getting everything wrong and going after the wrong people. One of the main characters says at a key moment, why is it you're always arresting the wrong people? Um, and so the, just, it, it, you know, the fact that you if you can make an alien invasion story that can also do that convincingly and that also feels so again, I'm not qualified to assess how well this captured the way that teenagers circa 2011 in a London housing estate would talk or act or dress. Like, I can't really be the judge of that. It's clear this movie made a serious effort to get that right. And I'm sure a lot of people appreciate that, too, if they're closer to it culturally than I am. I guess the point is, this is just a shockingly beloved movie. And I, I say shockingly because it's it's in that category of movies that are foreign but should be very accessible to American audiences that I almost can't believe more Americans haven't seen. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a foreign movie in English, for Christ's sake. Suck it up. Well, sort of in English. I mean, you, you kind of need subtitles for it. But <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, the, kid, the kids just have very thick accents, and they use a really like a really high density of slang. So it's in that category of uh, movies that's going for a, it's going for a very specific voice that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't always catch everything that's happening. It's kind of like a Guy Ritchie movie in that way. Um, if you've seen like Snatch or Lockstock, where sometimes you just want to you want subtitles for what Brad Pitt is saying. But I mean, yeah, it's in English and it's in I, I, one that I would compare this to. I know I'm rambling. I'm going to let Pete here talk a little bit in a second, but it reminds sure me a lot. <laughs> I always say that. And I never do. I know. <laughs> one movie I'd compare it to, though, is uh, Four Lions, which I don't know if have you seen Four Lions, Pete. I have not. Oh, hold on a sec, man. There we go. Now we're now we're cooking with gas, um, but uh, it's not that similar. But they are both English movies. Four Lions is an extremely dark comedy about would be terrorists who are very bad at being terrorists, and it's just one of the like sort of cold darkest comedies I've ever seen. And it's phenomenal, and it never has gotten its due over here in the U.S. And I think it might. I mean, the, the easy thing to say would be that like it's just too dark for American audience, which I think is actually a simplistic claim. But anyway. I'm just rambling now about like movies that are from the Anglosphere that are in the same language as us that don't get their due. And Attack of the Block is one of those for me. But I mean, I before I go rant some more about this, Pete, like what was your broad impression here that you finally came to this movie? Well, um, one of two things is happening here, and I'm not really sure which it is, to be honest. I'm still like I I watched it within four hours of recording. So there's a part of my brain that's still chewing at what I saw. Um, but either this movie is a harsh criticism of multiple genres of film, or it's a movie that just completely walked off the path and wasn't interested in other movies at all. And I, I haven't decided which it is, and I think either one's great. I mean, it would either choice wouldn't reduce the film for me. Okay, I am really interested to hear you unpack that more because I. I'm not and I'm not saying I disagree with you in either mm-hmm. case, but I'm not totally sure what you mean. Let's 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 take that one at a time. What would it mean if this were a harsh critique of many other genres of film? OK, well, um, you can draw cross comparisons between this and other films in that it has similar moments to those films. But the way they play out are is very different and very harsh. Like the, I think the most obvious one is you remember the beginning of E.T. where the kids run into the alien? It's been a long time since I saw E.T., but let's just say I do. <laughs> OK, well, there's a moment of fear and they befriend and they share Reese's pieces. You know, it's a whole thing. And in this movie, these kids encounter an alien in the middle of a mugging and 
immediately murder it. Like, there's no moment of fear. There's no moment of running off. There's something in their face that's scary, and they attack. And think about how that lines up with, like, conventional horror. Yeah, that's a fantastic point that I think needs to be emphasized. And I want to hear you finish the argument, but I I just want to note, in in total agreement with you, that what's great about this movie, I think what makes it feel such a great indictment of our society, and especially of sort of policing and the carceral state, is that you get the sense that these kids are, they're used to so much chaos and to being a sort of under attack in all kinds of different ways. We see sort of like older established gangsters are antagonizing them. The police are antagonizing them. Pretty much every system that they're exposed to is antagonizing them in some way. All they have is each other and their kind of tenuous community. And so you get the sense that like their, their response to a new antagonist entering the frame is not to go on this big like, soul searching about how could this happen? It's to say, all right, another threat needs to be eliminated, needs to be challenged. And I think that's, that's a great, um, that's kind of at the core of what the movie's doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. And that's like, I can keep doing this, but it's not, I don't feel like I'm making a overarching argument. It's like, I'm, I'm throwing down a series of cards to make my point. Like there's a lot of movies out there that are about the young, hopeful kid in the bad neighborhood that sort of gets sucked up into the orbit of like a really bad guy, the drug dealer, whoever it is. And this kid gets sort of sucked into the orb of the drug dealer, and the guy's like, you're working for me now. I'm the biggest guy in the block. And, like, Noah doesn't say it, but he's like, fuck you. Like, there's there's no association there. He's having to interact with this person because he doesn't have a choice, and you see no enthusiasm. He's not building identity around this asshole, and I've never seen a drug movie like that. And it, it just sort of flashed that card at one point. I... Yeah, I read it a little bit differently just because I thought when that guy sort of commissioned him to do some dealing for him that there was like a grim, perhaps reluctant kind of, but still a kind of pride that there was kind of a promotion going on from them being whatever they're doing, hanging around the periphery of this to getting involved in the kind of the core of the illicit things that are going on in their building. But you're right that it's not like that is... It's sort of, first of all, it's ancillary to the main plot of the movie, which still remains about fighting aliens. <laughs> and right. it's uh, it's played very matter-of-factly. It's like, all right, this is something that, like, these kids are already deeply ensconced in their very specific community. And that's just one other thing they'll get, they, that they, you know, sort of will get involved with as time goes on, unless they make some kind of conscious choice not to. And it's like, it's, it's all handled very pragmatically, I guess is the point. Like, rather than being a series of big dramatic shifts, it's like, this is just part of the landscape we're dealing with. And I think in the most literal sense, this movie is very interested in geography and to- topography and landscape. I mean, the, the landscape is a metaphor because it's a building. But the point is, like, this movie is very intimately interested in what it means to just live in a kind of vast, high-rise, super dense housing estate and what the kind of realities you're going to just treat pragmatically and treat mundanely are going to be in that setting. And in this case, yeah, the sort of having to navigate these older, more dangerous drug dealers is just a big part of that. And again, I'm rambling. I don't, by the way, think that you're just throwing cards at the table. I think this is really interesting because you read it as a challenge to the genre, which I think is true. And I think that that kind of has to be true for it to be original in the way that I mean. But I I read it, I don't see it as being a very caustic critique, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and 
uh, like the kids personify that. I think you you you're you're onto something there. It's like the, these kids are not in full scale rebellion against the police or their parents or anything like that. They're just trying to get by and get it done, and that sort of seems to be what the movie's doing too, right? Like. It's just like it's trying to find its own path, navigating all this shit and trying not to fall into a genre. Maybe. Yeah, there's a lot of just getting by for these characters. I I mean, I, I think my read might be a little bit different than yours, but I think let's unpack it a little bit further. Because what okay. you just what you just teased right now is kind of part two of what you said earlier to me, at least it seemed that way, which is that it's sort of is it, it, it that you could read it as kind of leaving other similar movies in the dust and not really caring that much. And, and is that where you're going with that? Well, I well, like I said, I'm still processing. And let me tell you about the point. Honestly, I think this is my weakest point, And it's the it's it's sort of the tipping point for the argument for me that it could go either way. And that is um, you watch a movie and it's usually like American children's movies like the Goonies or something like that. And you have. Like you've got the you've got the fat kid, you've got the older strong kid, you've got, and then there's like there, there's a girl, and then there's a black kid. You know what I mean? Like they try and spread out the demographics just enough so their audience can say that person is me, right? And and this movie, like the main characters were um, a a bunch of young, and I nearly called them African African American, which is not true. <laughs> Um, black kids, but one white guy in the middle or one white kid in the middle. And it is very difficult for me to parse down whether that is a direct attack on the way those other movies are positioned or like it's it's how it is like with within within those those larger. I don't know what you call call them. Condecologies, the the bigger buildings. People housing just, estate is the is the British term, but yeah, go ahead. Yes, well, I mean, pe- your 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 group is determined by where you live and who you're next to. Well, yeah, I, that, that's interesting, and again, it becomes kind of a question of I don't really know enough about the sociology of that specific kind of London area housing estate. To oh, I lived in one for years. You lived in a like no, I'm I'm totally full of it, dude. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait. I mean, I don't know if I have repeat story. I guess my point is like, there's a lot of like very specific, both English, but like specifically London, sort of metropolitan London things going on here that I just like, there's no use of us trying to referee how they, where they landed because it's just, it's not for me, you know, it's just, I have to sort of accept it. But I think that the, um, yeah, I think that you're making an interesting point about like, it's the, the diversity that happens here. It feels there does feel like there's an attempt to sort of realistically render the kind of the ways that people are going to collide and not have, I wouldn't say that there's a, a lot of that doesn't feel like tokenism to me, to be clear the Nick Frost character being played by Nick Frost is this white guy who sort of helps manage this drug enterprise for this black drug dealer. He's got white customers. The movie opens with these kids mugging this white nurse who's recently arrived in the neighborhood. And then they sort of over the course of the movie, they become allies so a lot of, there is a lot of, you know, a lot of questions about race being raised, but it's all handled very much in, in a kind of a matter of fact, pragmatic. Well, this is just how this is just what our block is like. A lot, and the movie kind of yeah. repeats over and over. The characters are constantly saying, like, you know, this is our block. And they kind of apologize to the nurse. Like, if we'd known you lived on, the, on this block, we would not have mugged you. And I don't know that, like, you know, I don't know that how, how much that often matters for sort of teenage muggers around the world. It may, you know, it may or may not. But the point is, like, there's a lot of sort of reiterated loyalty to, like, 
whatever it is that constitutes the block, it's our block. And that's just the mm-hmm. reality. And we're going to go forward with it. Um, well, do you remember that moment, the nurse, uh, the when when they were bandaging that that kid's leg and she mentioned something about looking for a new place? So the guy guy's like, well, what's wrong with here? It's like. You just mugged her and you're bleeding out on her couch because aliens are attacking. Of course she wants to leave. What are you, insane? Right. And it's this great, it's a great moment of comedy for exactly that reason. I think that's, you know, that's an intentional laugh. But yeah, the, that is that's partly to show us that these characters, the concept of their block is just really deeply important to them. And they're they're able to have malleable definitions of it because it's like as soon as they find out that someone they didn't think lived there lives there, they would say we'd never would have mugged you if we'd known that. And again, like I think the movie has a really interesting view of gentrification that I don't I don't necessarily know that it's become more popular as urban gentrification has accelerated in the last decade because this is from almost 10 years ago now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, so, yeah, so the phenomenon, for instance, of white newcomers moving into majority, it would have traditionally been minority neighborhoods in major cities around the world. In the U.S., all over the U.S., certainly, but also it happens in Europe. Um, that has accelerated. And, like, would this movie take a different approach to all of that if it were made now? Quite possibly, especially if it were um, trying to be as loyal to sort of the dynamics on the ground as it seems to try to be. But, again, that's 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 sort of that's very that's more speculative. And I think it's just important to note that for these characters, they have sort of an infinitely adjustable definition of what the block is. But once they reach that definition, they're going to protect the block. And hence the movie being called Attack the Block, because when you attack the block, it doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter if you're the police or a space alien, then you are the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, 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 well, one of the things that I do on occasion that that you actively resist and I encourage you to do so is uh, like moral valuations of the things we watch. But I think it's very interesting that they uh, they open this basically with the scene of these kids doing things that you would traditionally watch in a movie and say, OK, these are the bad guys. Yeah, they, they mug this, uh, you know, poor, vulnerable woman. Yes. Yeah. And I, I mean, and that's I think that's what's made me start getting obsessed with reversals in this, which like if I'm sitting here going, oh, look at all the weird reversal as aliens are attacking. There's probably something wrong with me. But it, it's just it's just something that really set the stage for me to pay attention to that, I guess. No, no, you're totally right. The reversals make the movie and they work precisely because it's a well-crafted tight. I mean, this is under 90 minutes, right? This is a great yeah. tight 90 action adventure. And because it this is this gets down to the Nicholas Brown theory about genre fiction that I referenced in my recent newsletter. If you haven't sent up my newsletter, now's a good time. Connorsother.substack.com. Okay, that's done. Um, but the Nicholas <laughs> Brown theory that I talked about through the lens of this movie is if you take an established genre with fairly clear rules, be it murder mystery, romance novel, um, in this case, you know, alien invasion action adventure. Like you have there are certain genre beats you have to hit and they're often fairly broad. It's like, all right, we need to establish what the threat is and have the initial reaction to the threat. The threat needs to sort of heighten and become more complicated. And then ultimately our heroes need to overcome the threat in the case of in this case, it's pretty straightforward. There's a little bit I mean, super straightforward, honestly, and very stripped down. In fact, a really bold choice I want to ask you about is how this movie doesn't really do lore or backstory. It only has one moment of Bruis, the guy that I jokingly said I was kind of like being a smarty pants and speculating about why the aliens are attacking. And then everyone's just like, who cares, man? Anyway. um, But the key point is this, you're talking about all the reversals in the movie that make it sort of sociologically interesting and very specific and challenging in some ways. Mm -hmm. 
And those are able to happen in a complicated, interesting way because the movie is is catering to its is is sort of solving its central genre problems very capably. So if it can keep us engrossed in the sort of in the narrative backbone, which is just fighting the alien invaders, then it gives itself the freedom to do a tremendous amount of other things. And this movie takes that freedom and runs with it in all the kind of ways that we've been discussing. And that's sort of the essence of the Nicholas Brown theory of why in a sort of post everything cultural malaise um, genre storytelling where you strongly embrace the core genre and then give yourself freedom within that architecture that you've built for the genre that he thinks genre fiction is more in some ways more promising than quote unquote literary fiction and literary storytelling, whatever. And again, it's very convenient to say, to say this on this podcast, but I increasingly subscribe to that theory. And that's sort of why I've shifted towards being more of a genre writer. And I've said that before, yeah. but this movie really makes me want to repeat that point. And again, I've been rambling. Pete hit me with something here. <laughs> uh, yeah. One of the things I noticed in this, this, um, uh, it's not a law, but everybody treats it like a law of filmmaking. I noticed situations where Chekhov's gun was violated and again and again. Could you talk to our audience about what Chekhov's gun is? And can you think of any examples? Well, um, first of all. Good man. <laughs> Got that going. So the concept of Chekhov's gun is fairly straightforward. There's a famous Chekhov quote. That says, and, and to be clear, it's important to note, Chekhov was a short story writer and a dramatist for the most part. So he was always about maximum elegance, getting the most out of your dramatic, ele- um, dramatic elements rather than the bagginess of a novel of many novelists. But anyway, Chekhov's gun is just a, a, an axiom that states, if you have a loaded gun on the mantelpiece in the story, at some point it needs to go off. It's just an axiom about setting things up and especially about setting up specific dramatic questions. When you see like if you introduce, I don't remember. So I want Pete to tell me after I'm, I want it to Pete to tell me in a second here what the examples are in this movie that he's thinking of. But like, mm-hmm. for instance, if you're making Game of Thrones and you spend a whole scene talking about a giant ballista you have to fight dragons with, that ballista has to do something. Uh, that's an example of Chekhov's gun. So what were you thinking of for this movie? Sure. Well, uh, two off the top of my head. Uh, the first would be, um, do you remember at the very beginning that there was a kid trying to show that he could make these big jumps across one set of rails to another? I don't actually remember that, but yeah, it sounds like the kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like he, he was about to show off his jumping skills and Noah pulled him back and said, don't do it, you can't make it. And that was it. They never mentioned it again. Um and another thing is those two younger kids, like one who had the, the pop gun and the other who had the squirt gun. And, and they were talking to each other. And when the pop gun got taken away, the guy's like, well, what are you going to do with the squirt gun? And one of them goes, well, it doesn't have water in it. Nothing more mentioned. Oh, oh I, no, but but Pete. Did I miss it? You missed, I missed it. it. They sprayed the alien and it was full of like later fluid. They lit the alien on fire. Holy shit, I totally... Mi- oh, <laughs> I must have gotten a phone call in the middle of that. Sorry. No, you're Look fine. Look at that. You're fine. I think it's a great it's a great opportunity for us to illustrate these basic narrative principles. Because you're right. If it had just been... Well, there's a couple, things, a couple ways that could have gone, right? If the joke was just, it's not full of water, and they filled it with pee, that could have been a sort of a simple scatological joke about little kids playing around. Yeah, but, and that's fine. <laughs> which is fine. But I think that ultimately, yeah, unless I'm way off base here... They sprayed the alien with it and they were able to light the alien on fire, which was part of which was a cool scene where they saved the guy that was in the dumpster. 
but also because um, there's a guy that's tra- this is great. This is great. Like, two th- like early 2010 stuff. There's a kid who gets trapped in the dumpster with a cell phone and has a really hard time kind of getting out partly because like his friends, they're all like on uh, sort of credit phone plans, like pay as you go. And a lot of them are like entirely out of credit and can't communicate with him as this is going on. It's pretty funny. But uh, yeah, they help, they help save that kid who, who does survive till the end. Um, and they also prove that the aliens are not uh, invincible uh, and they can be defeated in a lot of conventional ways, which our hero Moses keeps proving over and over again, especially with a samurai sword that he gets from uh, a different kid. So, yeah, I mean, those are great examples of Chekhov's gun. The jumping the rails thing, I wonder how much of that was just to establish that Moses is, like, has a cooler head in certain ways than the rest of these kids. I, I didn't catch that scene as, as much, but... Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it obviously wasn't earth-shaking. Like, it, it's, it could have easily been something that they just cut out to make it a tight 90, and honestly, I support that choice. Yeah, I think like, that, that our show is generally pro-tight 90, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> The, the, oh God! Attack the block end game. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there is a lot of questions this movie raises. I'm glad you brought up the Marvel one, but it it, it raises the question of like, like every sort of contemporary movie of this kind, we are like, all right, why aren't we making more of these? And the the most obvious, I guess, there's two obvious answers here. One is that it is a fairly challenging and politically radical movie, and that it it makes absolutely no bones about its broad distrust of the police and the entire justice system. Uh, and that is made very concrete in the narrative. Now, again, that might actually help you get financing right now as there's a great vogue for that kind of discourse uh, cynically or not out there in the culture. But, you know, it's, it's a thing that would stand in your way from becoming the next big franchise, arguably uh, back, especially 10 years ago. And then also just the fact that, yeah, it's not, it doesn't lend itself to a franchise. It's based, it's original screenplay. As far as I know, um, yeah, it's, I think there's, I think there's been some talk about making a sequel, but it's one of those things that just gets trapped in development hell. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it would, it would be a risk because what, what makes this movie so fresh and interesting is that it is surprising and it, it, it does sort of like subvert or even defy your expectations. And if you make a sequel, how are you going to do that? Are you just going to make it conventional surprise? You know, um, yeah, exactly. And I think the, the trap a sequel would fall into is something that I want to ask you about, which is I, what I found really interesting was there. They just really did not want to do backstory or lore here. Like I said, they had that one moment of the dorky posh guy speculating about like some that this that they'd kill the female alien and the male aliens were chasing them because they, they had the hormones all over them, which is kind of proven correct, because in a UV light setting in the little drug grow in the cannabis growing uh space that that ron has with the uv light on they can they can see that they're covered in like alien pheromones or whatever so there's some truth to that but that is literally as in-depth as this gets and it also keeps very closely to the scope of the block like you get the sense that there are aliens landing all over london and thus you know kind of a big deal probably out there in the broader world there are aliens all over london but the scope of this movie even in kind of a digital you know cell phone driven era is very much like this is our block this is what's happening on our block and we're not going to worry about like the epic lore behind any of this. What did you make of all that? Oh, I loved it. I mean, it's uh, whenever there's a big event and like, obviously the, the one I'm thinking of right now is, is COVID-19. Uh, the, you, 
like an individual rolling through the middle of it is is very unlikely to have a real idea of what's actually going on. Like they may have pieces of the puzzle, but the idea that you're handed this neatly bowed narrative is such is such well it's a play thing, let alone a film thing. And the idea that this movie just sort of completely rejected that as the path to take like, who cares if the audience is comfortable and feels like they know exactly what's going on? You know, the director knows what's going on and you're along for the ride. It's great. It's how it's how more films should be. Yeah, I agree. And to expand on that, I think that the key thing here is the stakes. This is another radical choice the movie makes. The stakes of this movie are not we have to save the earth or we have to save humanity. The stakes of the movie are we got to protect the block. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that's what matters. If you don't live on the block in this movie, you don't matter and you're an enemy. And that's, I think, really kind of core to what some of the more radical inversions that it's doing and just sort of its overall ethos. Um, but I'm totally with you. I also want to ask you in that same spirit, we already talked about the ways this challenges a number of different genres. What sure. older what older stories, be they movies or not, did this remind you of? Oh, uh, well, I mean, one one thing that's fairly obvious, and I won't go too deep into it, is like there's a whole era of science fiction invasion stories that it plays off of. And, you know, but since it's sort of deliberately trying to avoid that that genre, like those aren't little cute aliens. We're not dealing with gremlins here. Uh, I'm all over the place on this one. I mostly thought about uh, sort of coming-of-age, teenage adventure stories for young teens. I'm thinking about things like Goonies or, God, what's another example? Stranger Things. Stranger Things is a good one, yeah. And Goonies. Yeah. Yeah, and well, the, the thing about Stranger Things is it happened after this. So in theory, the person who watched it could have watched Attack the Block and used it to inform, so I don't even know. But uh, it is... Uh, the the whole idea of getting a group of young people together and put them putting them on a, on an adventure to save their community I mean that is Hollywood loves that crap but they don't love it like this and that's because you know you you don't you don't show that marginalized people are marginalized well yeah you don't you don't make the terms let's put it this way you don't put you don't make the terms of marginalization and oppression and exploitation as explicit as this story does. This one is really good about getting like, you know, it, it makes very concrete for you. What are the problems with the police in a community like this? And the problem is, as the kid says at the end, why are you all I mean? Why are you always arresting the wrong people? Which is not even to imply that they're necessarily right people to arrest. It's just to imply the police have done nothing throughout this entire story, but make things worse. And spoiler alert. They arrest the heroes at the end. The final scene of this movie is all the heroes of this story being arrested and taken out to a paddy wagon while the rest of the neighborhood chants their names, especially Moses, uh, who's the main the main hero here, who's played by the by the way, played by John Boyega. This is this movie presumably is why John Boyega got to be part of Star Wars, at least a large part of it, because that he can really act. He did a phenomenal job with this kind of laconic gravitas as this character. And I would love to see him get a chance to be in some roles that where he gets to do more than he did in those awful <laughs> recent Star Wars movies, uh, well, especially the third one. But <laughs> one of the things about the Star Wars movies is like uh, uh, he, he got Dosh, you know, so he probably will have the option to do things like that in the future because like he doesn't need to worry about 
bills, I assume, unless he's made some really shitty choices, which is possible. No, you're totally right. And uh, he's got kind of an anarchic spirit. He loves to speak his mind on Twitter. So he's, he's an interesting guy. And this was, I think, quite early in his career. Um, yeah, I back to the, the key point. I think you made something really important point here, which is that you can't understand this movie or really make meaningful comparisons if you don't think about it in terms of an ensemble of teenagers. You need to have this kind of big dynamic group of teens who are you know, full of adolescent hormones and are starting to come of age uh, to really understand what this film is all about. And then to understand that, that they are teens who are their feet, their feet are planted firmly on the specific terrain of their community. And that I think that's why Goonies or Stranger Things makes is a, you know, a, a pretty solid comparison, just because once you're kind of rooted in that, uh, you know, so many other key aspects of this movie kind of open up for you. And I'm going to ask a dumb I'm going to ask kind of a meathead question here that I think is interesting. Do you think I love I, softballs, man? <laughs> well, how underrated of an action hero do we think Moses John Boyega's character is? I think he kicks ass in this. Oh, well, he has a very, uh, uh, God, a spaghetti Western aspect to him. Like, everybody else is freaking out or getting angry, laughing, all of those things. But, like, he sort of has the thousand-yard stare pose, and he doesn't, like, he's perfect. He is, uh... He 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 reminds me of I can't even believe I'm saying this. This is a stupid thing to say, but he's got that young Clint Eastwood thing going on where he can he can sort of project that I'm about to go after you in a way without without doing a lot of bizarre physicalization. Like he, he just like what what acting it was so good. Yeah, you're right that there's there's a kind of physical gravitas um, that he possesses that it, I don't think it's silly to compare him to young Clint Eastwood at all. I think it's actually quite an apt comparison. And I think Western, so Western is one of the genres this riffs on. Uh, samurai movies is an explicit riff because John Boyega has a samurai sword that he got from his friend who unfortunately dies in the course of this this film. Uh, that he pulled off his wall in his collection of like <laughs> the katanas and uh, and daggers, samurai style. Uh, so that you know the sort of yojimbo slash fistful of dollars territory of those mid-century samurai and western films, which sort of recursively influenced one another. That's very that's one of the main clear influences here. It's also I mean, a lot of the best action is just very deeply, you know, a contemporary action is just deeply and overtly influenced by that. I think I think Marvel movies would be a lot better if they went back and watched their Yojimbo a few times. Uh. <laughs> oh, that's fair. Well, I mean, I certainly I I would like the people who are making a lot of the 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 Marvel superhero movies to spend a little time with spaghetti westerns too. Uh, I've always had a soft spot in my heart with them because, like. My dad and I used to watch those together growing up. You know what I mean? That it, they're sort of part of the manhood ritual. Ritual. I'd 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 be able to get some Budweiser out of it. That kind of thing. And <laughs> so the king of beers, huh? Right. Ooh, it's it's coming through. Uh, but but the the thing about it, and I mean, uh, both both types of movie sort of have the you can use them to to criticize marvel movies in the same way is that they are they are spartan they peel away a lot of the things that are unnecessary to the film and say well the characters are uh 
um, I don't know what you call them, uh, icons, platonic, platonic ideals, uh, embodiments. Yeah, archetypes. Uh, and these are, those are all there, good. I would yes. say archetypes. But yeah, those are all good ways of saying the same thing, essentially. Yeah, and I mean, there's some of that going on in, in this film. I mean, I think it's, um, I, I, I think that's overrated, but you could certainly uh, to take take the the position that that nurse was representing a lot of people. Yeah. So you have the nurse who, to be clear, she's what we would derogatorily call a gentrifier because she's an outsider, an educated outsider who's moving into this neighborhood. I think it's a little bit hard to hang that on a nurse because presumably she doesn't make very much money and she's just looking for an affordable place to live. And that gets into the complexity of how gentrification really works and like who's at fault, who's culpable and to what degree, which I'm not going to dive into much on our sci-fi show, but it is, yes, she's the archetype of the out, the outsider moving into these urban spaces um, that have historically been viewed as a kind of like no go, you know, sort of boundary zone or whatever. In, in cities and sort of you have people from outside now moving in and blah, blah, blah. And I think that, yeah, the, 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 when you strip a movie down as much as this is, and this is like 85 minutes of movie and a lot happens, you need to do that. You're going to have to use archetypes. You're going to have to lean on tropes. You're going to have to simplify things for yourself. What I think is interesting is I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you that part of the appeal of like those Eastwood spaghetti Westerns or the Kurosawa samurai movies, which was like, some of the crowning examples of those different genres. So yeah, movies like A Fistful of Dollars, like Sanjuro or Yojimbo, so much of what they do is, is as you said, strip things down to the most elegant example of the way, most elegant mode of telling this kind of story. And that I think it makes them really educational for storytellers because you can easily sort of, you can easily diagram what's going on there in a way that you can't as easily diagram like, the red and the black or Wuthering Heights. Like it's easy to get bogged or like, you know, infinite jest. It's easy to get bogged down in a lot of the baggage, <laughs> a lot of the baggage, especially in the novel form. And that's why these, these sort of elegant movies are so useful is to get past some of that. However, I think what this movie does, that's a little bit, it's very radical in multiple senses is it doesn't want to strip itself down in that way. I think at a character level, it does at a character level. It's, it's, it's comfortable with archetypes. As you pointed out, the nurse is arguably an archetype the kind of wasteoid drug dealers an archetype, the dangerous drug dealers an archetype, the kids fit different archetypes. You have the wise, the one white kid in the gang is like a wisecracking jester type, you know? Um, and, and Boyega himself is a fairly like, he's a laconic action hero who rises to the occasion in a profound way. He's brave. He's capable. He ultimately has a good heart that's buried behind a gruff exterior. And he's got a little bit of, he's got a kind of a sad past. You can tell that he lives in kind of a broken household. His apartment is depressing and he might mostly live there by himself as a 15 year old. Uh, we see a little bit of that, but it's done in the course of like an otherwise tight, very kinetic scene. So it's like really done. I mean, it's, it's maximum tightness. So I guess the point is like, He's interesting, but he's also archetypal, and that's fine. But the film is not interested in stripping down to be like, you could do a much more basic version of a kind of urban alien attack film, and it would be less interesting than this. Because what makes it interesting is its engagement with kind of the the day-to-day realities of what these kids are dealing with in this community, especially with policing, but also with the kind of home situations they have, with the way that their identity grows out of loyalty to the specific block, and so on and so forth. So it, it builds up a lot of that in, again, in an elegant way. But it's almost like you have two elegant stories being told that I think are meshed together very well rather than just a super stripped down action story. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I don't know. Like like I said, I just I just saw it today. I'm still I'm still 
I, I'm not done formulating takes. I'm still processing. But I would say that uh, if you haven't seen this film, you should probably take a little time to do so because I think it's a for for such a for such a a, a crafted linear movie. There's a lot of interesting things going on. It's really worth your time. Yeah, I think Pete said it very well. In addition to all of the things we've already covered, just like if you want a masterclass in how to achieve propulsivity of plot with a lot of action, if you want to put a plot on rails and make sure it's packed with action and also make sure that there's some interesting thematic resonance that isn't totally generic, this is a true masterclass in that. I think, I mean, among movies that we've covered, it's honestly... In those regards, it's in the same class as something like Alien or Aliens, where it's like you have the extremely satisfying action laden genre plot, and you also have a lot of attention to thematic detail that is handled. It's not just asserted. It's not just kind of gestured at. It's it's like made very concretely real in their dealings with the police in particular. So, yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. I honestly, it's 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 one of those rare films for me where I knew it was good when I first saw it. And then when I revisited it several years later, like uh, last week, I was like, wow, this is actually significantly better than I remembered. And I am partly able to appreciate that because I've just, everything I've learned about storytelling since then uh, made me appreciate the kind of masterful work that's being done here. Yeah. So I have one final question for you, Connor, unless you come up with something else. Uh, What are we going to name this? My two thoughts were Pete got the squirt gun thing wrong. Or unpack the schlock. <laughs> well, I think our naming conventions on the uh, SoundCloud are probably going to remain fairly boring. But uh, I do like unpack the schlock. If we're, <laughs> I, I want to be clear. I don't think this actually qualifies as schlock. I think it's far too well crafted and sort of careful to qualify as that. You could make a case yeah. for it. You could call it pulp if you wanted to be really. Yeah. Anyway, so I know oh, you're well, you're just joking. I know. Counterpoint, it rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> that is a compelling case. So, yeah, probably the Patreon file at least will be called that. Um, yeah, I, I, honestly, I, you know, I, this one, we might, and I, I don't want to promise yet, we might have more content about this one coming that will hopefully illuminate it even further because I love it and I think a lot of people love it. So I hope you enjoyed listening to us gab about it. Um, yeah. That's that's it for me. What do you think, Pete? Uh, yeah, except uh, I'm probably going to ask the Discord crew to play this movie in the next couple of weeks. So people who want to watch it uh, with with curious people can uh, do it with friends. Yeah. So if you're not a patron and you're listening to this behind the paywall, you can get into our Discord. And as part of that, you can access not only uh, our wonderful day to day chats that we have in there, which I actually do have a lot of fun with. But also there's a movie night project that some people are running very diligently um, that you can get into as well. So that's another reason to become a patron. Yep, and 400 million old episodes that are all awesome. That's another good reason. Yep, all the best stuff is behind the paywall. That's not actually true, but there's a lot of good stuff there. <laughs> <laughs> become a patron. Thanks, everyone. Yes. Thanks, guys. Yes.